Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cinematic Underdogs. I'm your host, Jordan Puga. And I'm your host, Paul Keelan. And today we're here with uh, Matthew Stroll. And I'm super excited for this podcast because Matthew has an awesome book, Why It's Okay to Love Bad Movies. And I listened to him on Cows in the Field podcast amazing podcast loved his take and all of his philosophical musings uh that episode was on another none other than twilight so that was a really fun episode to hear people championing something that's usually shit on by most individuals in the best way possible and so i'm excited because our genre is kind of maligned by the powers that be in the film community so i feel like we have that same like underdog ethos so without further ado welcome to the podcast Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And uh, so just to get a little bit, to learn a little bit about you and your background and to fill in our listeners on you. So I see you have your PhD at Princeton, right? And you're like deeply invested in a more like philosophical lens on movies. So so what what approach are you taking? What's your like ethos when you're looking at these, let's call them B movies as an aficionado, right? And you're sort of trying to change our perception of them. So if you can just fill our listeners in really quickly, like what's the, what's your main thesis right now? I'm sure you have many, I'm sure you're just a movie lover, but with this book and so forth on cinema as a whole. My career in philosophy began doing ancient Greek philosophy, Aristotle scholarship. Um, and I'm also a cinephile and it's like over, over a long period of time, I've gained the got to the point of my career where I'm free to just do what I want to. And so I'm like, I'm at this point, I'm writing about movies pretty much only um, just because I, I find it much more entertaining. And like, the, the new book, uh, Why It's Okay to Love Bad Movies, if I had to sum it up, my main agenda in writing it is that I think that there's a large culture of appreciating bad movies in various ways. And this culture, I think, is unfortunately tainted by like a great deal of like snark and ridicule and and like a sort of sense that, yeah, we like these movies, but we like them, you know, we're making fun of them in a certain way as we like them or, or somehow they're guilty pleasures, but we like them anyways. And like what I essentially wanted to try to do with the book is just give a full throated defense of, of a lot of the movies that are all, not just not just considered sort of disrespectful, but some of the movies are considered the worst movies ever made, you know, just sort of get in there and um, give a full throated defense, not just of liking and enjoying these movies, but of loving them and making them a part of your life. Yeah, I love that. It's a, a sort of a stance against the postmodern ironic take of either cackling and enjoying it, like the sort of snakes on a plane-esque bad movie take, right? Which has this sort of like self-satisfactory glibness to it. Um, it's not that what you're doing. And what, what's fun is that it's like you're you're preaching for what as far as I've gotten into it, like aesthetic relativism. But you're in no way like nihilistic or just like anything goes. You have like deeply embedded arguments that like come from probably your Greek philosophical, you know, scholarship that really sells like the points of like why certain ways that we're trained to see films um, through like a critical lens are actually limiting and not charitable and closing ourselves off to like a much richer aesthetic appreciation of all the uh, possibilities of consuming art, right? And so I really, really appreciate this sort of expansiveness to your aesthetic lens. And it works so perfectly with what we're doing too, because we're, we're here with, you know, the sports movies. And once again, our genre, I think, even though you don't tackle it so much in your book, there's a few I saw, I was reading about sudden death, right? Which is part of the diehard scenario movies that you brought up right. as a reference, right? Um, and the, the film today we're going to do is in that diehard scenario catalog. It's even on the website you reference in your book. So yeah, I just thought that that was really perfect for, for sports movies because 
we are also, I think, taking a, an intellectual, just naturally, like we're both, you know, <laughs> Jordan's a professor, uh, adjunct professor, and I just, I read like all the time. So we, we both have a naturally like intellectual lens, as much as we love these on a like raw emotional level. So it, it's a fun conflation of the two. Uh, so anyways, in terms of sports movies, let's try to like bridge our our worlds a little bit uh what are some so bad they're good sports movies when i say that I, i'm already doing a disservice because you really tease out that phrase in your book mm-hmm. in that first chapter so i apologize for that well um, sure yeah. yeah so let me let me um so let me actually address a couple things you just said and then answer your question about sports movies so one thing you said at the beginning of that was that you said that i'm a relativist and i would resist that label um it's not obvious i, I understand why you think that um but at the end you haven't gotten to the end yet. At the end of the book i try to distance myself maybe a little more from that label but so a relativist is somebody who thinks that like whatever value something has for you is the value that it has and there's no other objective standard at all there's no other subject independent standard at all and i actually don't think that it's not that i think that um anything goes it's that i think that the sort of a, a way of thinking about art in terms of norms of correctness in terms of conventions and standards that um that, that it's limiting and it misses real values that are already out there that, that actually exist so it's not that it's not that what you know whatever you like you like and it's all relative it's that thinking too rigidly in terms of good and bad blocks out a lot of real values. Um, and regarding the, the sports movie genre, which is a genre that I that I like very much, um, even though I don't like sports um, very much. Uh, I, so like you said, um, saying something that's so bad, it's good. That that That's definitely a complex label as I interpret it. So what I argue in the book, this is a little complicated, but what I argue, long story short, is that when we say a movie's so bad, it's good, and we say that in an affectionate, loving way, what we mean is, it's unconventional. It's bad according to the standards and norms of the culture. And in virtue of that, it's good, right? So bad's actually not a value judgment there. Bad is picking out, like descriptively picking out the fact that it's not the way it's supposed to be according to sort of mainstream ways of thinking about movies. Um, and I think that there are whole genres that are like this, right? There are whole genres where they're seen as being somehow um, inherently like limiting or inherently inferior. And maybe some examples are seen as transcending the genre. I absolutely hate that phrase, by the way, right? When people say this transcends the horror genre, this transcends the sports movie genre. I immediately think it, it didn't need to be transcended, um, but uh, it's just a really good example of the genre is all, right? Um, but yeah, so I think sports movies, precisely because it's such a disrespected genre, because they're often formulaic and being formulaic is seen as an inherently bad quality, uh, because they're often sentimental, because they often pander to the audience in very Various ways they have unrealistically happy endings often like when Stallone beats the much younger boxer in one of the late you know Rocky seven or six or whatever stuff like that right um I, I understand they're sort of lumped together as kind of a bad genre right but the things about the genre that are disrespected are exactly the things that are that people who love it find appealing right so it's exactly in that zone of being interesting in virtue of the ways that it's unconventional disrespectable whatever right disreputable I'm going to jump in here because you already meant this sounds like I've been read your book yet, but like you're preaching to the choir here. You're literally naming movies that I actually like not ironically. I love you just mentioned I was going to say I threw out Mortal Kombat Annihilation is one that I was thinking of with everything you're talking about that I absolutely love yeah. to kind of watch. And it's, you know, the bad one. Uh, but you just mentioned Rocky six or seven because I'm like, yeah, I can't remember which one it is where he fights <laughs> the younger boxer. But we just had this discussion uh, on our last podcast, of which was our favorite Rocky movies. And I think we, we found out stylistic. I think I tend to go towards all those who are considered low brow. Uh, but in the most earnest sense, I really do connect with those, as you said, in the enjoyability, the rewatchability, the sustainability, I think is another thing I appreciate it with those things. Like we said, not really transcending anything, just being itself within its own little contained thing. And 
find that joy. I always mention on this podcast, just bring it back to three of his episodes. Uh, Paul and I once had a childhood fight over which movie is better. Casper, the friendly ghost starring Christina Ricci. And uh, who was the uh, heartthrob in that one? Devin Sawa. Devin Sawa. And then uh, the original Mortal Kombat. Uh, giant backyard brawl or the earnestness of which movie was better on the merit of these are good movies. We weren't even debating that there were bad movies that did something good. We were debating that one, one was inferior to the other movie on its own merit. So I feel like your book speaks to, to this kind of, to this audience that is not really ironic. It's not really about the guilty pleasures. Um, it's about the pleasures of the movie that the movie draws to the audience. I'm really interested actually dig into your book and obviously in this conversation today. Right, right on. And like, even like, yeah, totally. It's like your Slipknot t-shirt. I love that, right? Because it's like Slipknot is an example of something that is, it's like, if you're not supposed to like Slipknot anymore. And I love exactly. that you're rocking the Slipknot, right? <laughs> um, glad you I appreciate like, it. I, I deliberately wore that shirt. I thought, I thought you'd catch that. So I'm glad. Yeah, yeah, no, I did. I appreciate that. And I, I think a good like slogan is that it's like, you know, um, how boring would it be if we all just like the stuff we were supposed to like? Right. Like when you because it's like it's just so interesting. It's not that there's anything wrong with that stuff. That stuff's often good. It's just so boring because everybody likes it. And so when somebody likes something that you're not supposed to like or that, you know, whatever, they have some out there opinion. I'm immediately intrigued, even if I don't like it. Right. I want I want to hear this. I want to hear your defense. You know, and this just happened. Like, so for just for example, um, I watched a movie. I don't even remember what it was, but like, you know, seven people on Letterboxd had reviewed it or something like that. And I loved it. And I just thought nobody liked it, but one person and the name of this person was their letterbox handle was number one brats fan and then i clicked on their account and i found that they were obsessed with the brats movie based on those toys so i immediately rented and watched the brats movie right so so it's like when you see somebody out there who is like you know liking something in a way that's very devious it's very like sort of, that makes me want to like you know look into their taste and like see more of what they like you know and whereas when somebody tells me that they like you know, whatever the popular thing is, I don't, I don't even know right now, like, you know, whatever the thing is that, that is getting buzzed and everybody thinks it's great. It just doesn't tell me anything about that person at all. Right. Mm -hmm. To find out that they like it. Yeah. I mean, they're just fitting the homogenous, like, uh, they sell. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with liking that stuff. It's just, if you like only that stuff, I find that boring, you know? And again, like, it's, it's like, you don't have to be interesting in every area of your life. Maybe you're not that into movies. Fine. But when you, people are into weird stuff that makes me interested in them yeah agree and it makes them stand alone but i, I want to go back too because i do think that i i preface the artistic relativism as like as like a straw man of that was my psychology going into your book and it was the yeah. last thing your book is so we are on the same page there that was my reading of your book was that like the straw man thought as you're reading this with the title right it kind of like flashy, slightly provocative tile, which I know it's part of a series, is that like, you know, I'm going to take this very relativistic take. That's the like, I think layman's understanding of it, just like someone defending, you know, B movies or or shit art, but you're, you're so much more rigorous than that. You get really into all sorts of new angles of parsing, you know, the art we consume to see like how it is, it transcends you know, our normal barometers of criticism, whereas like our mainstream critics can only see, you know, a film as a sequel in an action franchise and that's it. And they sort of dismiss it off the bat. And let's say we value actors for being, I think you wrote in one sentence, just like kind of naturalistic or we, we value method acting. You know, we, we value these certain things as high levels of acting, but like, why don't we value these mannered and minimalist performances by our action stars, which have their own syntax, which have their own formal rigor that 
takes like immense skill and it's finely tuned. And you can see like over a career when you watch like all Jean-Claude Van Damme movies, or if you watch all Stallone movies, you watch even The Rock today, you know, you get into um, uh, an actor that I'm not even too familiar with. I forget his name right now, but he was like, he came up in the eighties. He was like friends with Andy Warhol. Uh, he was Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You get into him for a while, which is really fun. Right. But you get into these actors and you see like, they have their signature. Right. I love that. And there's just so many moments in this book that I was just like, this is so perfect for, for what we're doing. You're talking about looking at, at a text, right. But not within mm-hmm the text itself, but within a genre, it's in this like system of signifiers that you're playing with in your head. And as you build that genre, your richness becomes elevated, unbelievable, which is like even two years into this, right? Like now sports movies have this like immense richness where the associations are so plentiful. It's like a conversation, right? Within any genre, within any field. So sorry, I'm sort of like getting a little uh, rambly now, but at, talking about sports movies, let's bring it back to that. I want to, I'm curious, we, we didn't get there yet. What are some of these sports movies uh, that you like that would be considered really bad uh, movies? I know we're doing kind of one today, Cliffhanger, but are there any others out there? Well, sure. So like, for like, for example, this, again, there's like two different sort of broad categories here that are in play. One is the sort of individual movie that's so bad, it's good, quote unquote. And the other is the, the category where the whole category is sort of so bad, it's good. But then there may be high achieving movies within that category. Right. So as far as that goes, one genre that I am super, super into, I would actually be surprised if there's anybody in the world right now who's more into this than I am, is uh, there was a craze, especially in the 80s into the 90s. Yeah, but really in the 90s was a lot of this where kickboxing was extremely popular globally. And like it's like sort of what MMA is now. And at the time, anyone who was a highly successful kickboxer could get a could, could act at all, could get a movie made. And so there are like a number of kickboxers who appeared in anywhere from like five to like 40 or 50 movies. Some of them are still acting. Don the Dragon Wilson is still acting, right? He's a, he started out as a kickboxing champion. Gary Daniels is still acting. Both of those guys were light middleweight kickboxing champions. And so there's like this huge genre of kickboxing movies. Like last year, I watched approximately one a day and I did not run out, <laughs> right? I mean, there are, I mean, not every day, but like every, you know, every day I was watching movies, at the end of the night, I would like search Tubi for another kickboxing movie. And I will tell you, it is a vast and wonderful genre. For example, like just to pick a random one out, there's this one where this kickboxer, Olivier Gruner, called Angel Town, where he like comes to town and he, um, at the time, there were all these like gang panic movies, right? There were all these movies about like a crime panic and gang panics, all these ga- like movies where gangs would terrorize citizens. So in the movie, this kickboxer, Olivier Gruner, moves in with this like nice family who takes in lodgers in this like, terrible neighborhood. And this neighborhood is like overridden by gangs. And so he has to like help defend this family from like the neighborhood gangs, right? But he does it with kickboxing. Um, so it's like, but, but, but there's a lot of these, for example, where people are forced in underground fighting tournaments in order to like get their brother, his brother's been kidnapped or whatever, right? So that's like one category that goes deep for me. I've, I like last year, I watched 25 Don the Dragon Wilson movies and like a pro- almost 25 Gary Daniels movies. So just those two actors, I nearly hit 50 last year. Um, and then um, another another uh, type of movie that I like is the racing movie, right? So like you talked about Speed Racer. I mean, so Speed Racer, so another category I talk about in the book are these movies that start out coded as bad. Then they're sort of rescued as cult objects. And then they eventually get assimilated and become more mainstream favorites again. And I think Speed Racer is a clear example of a movie on that trajectory, Right. What you call they call a film modi, right? A cursed film, a film that that like, you know, it was just it just had a terrible reception. Everything went wrong. 
Um, it, they didn't, it, they didn't get to make the sequel. They didn't. And then the result of that was though, that some people, I would, I actually liked it. I saw it when it came out, I loved it. So I was, a, a, but like um, some people, like for example, you, in your podcast, you, you, um, Speed Racer, you talked about somebody said, so just watched some Saturday morning a few years later and like, wow, this is good. Right. So people, I think, stumbled into it, discovered it. And like over time, it became a cult favorite. And I think before long, we're going to see a big restored speed racer with a theatrical run and a new 4K disc. And, you know, it's going to be a big thing. Right. But like all kinds of racing movies like that, like, you know, Days of Thunder. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention Days of Thunder. Some actually is a sort of funny backdoor comparison with, with Cliffhanger. But like Days of Thunder is a personal favorite for me. And again, it's seen as this kind of like sub Top Gun 80s Tony Scott, Tom Cruise thing that I, I don't think it's seen as a great film. Right. Um, certainly not proportionate to how much I like it. Yeah. I mean, those are all great references. It's funny you brought up kickboxing and you didn't even bring up Jean-Claude Van Damme, which shows how deep that that goes. I thought immediately you're going to just get into like the kickboxer series. I was going to but... say Lionheart, too. <laughs> Yeah, I've seen all the kickboxer movies, yeah. the first one. Yeah, actually, he's in the last two as well. He's in the late ones. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because like there's a semantic thing going on here that's, I think, really fascinating, too, where it's like, is bad even bad? Right. What are the semantics of bad? Because it like, can you call something bad and yet enjoy it? Right. There, there is there a pleasurable, I guess, what do we call a guilty pleasure? But, you know, there's a difference between qualities right there there's there's qualum and i mean at least i think so i'm a little bit of a formalist in that sense of like if you're in a four seasons hotel right that's a different environment than if you're at if you're at the scrapyard and that's a fundamentally different ethos and aesthetic you know i think that would take a real relativist to say that those that's just like a subjective difference like there's qualities to environments and there's qualities to art and so it's funny where you you sort of parse or tease out like how like the qualities and the incongruities in films, right? Sometimes make things inadvertently good for a very different reason. Um, and then you get into intentionality, right? Like, was this acting intended, right? Are two actors in different films with each other, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like in The Core, right? You talk yeah. about Aaron Eckhart and he's in a different film than everyone else in The Core. And so you get into the intentionality and the dissonance, you know, the artistic dissonance between two people of the same project. And I mean, you start to see that a little bit in our uh, our last episode, which is a Stallone film called Victory, right? Where Michael Caine's in kind of one film and Stallone's in another film. And there's like a humor and a bizarreness to their their sharing of the same screen. And you see that uh, time and time again in, in our genre and some of these malign films. But it adds this like pleasurable element, right? I uh, use the word grotesqueness, which I find very fascinating. So this grotesqueness is sort of, I'm just going to try to help you tease this out to our listeners too. If it's unintentional, right? Something's unintentionally bad, but it's but it's sort of pleasurably grotesque, right? If there's something that's fascinating, is that a good bad movie to you? Let, let me so let me back up a little bit. Would we say something is good or bad, right? And we just leave it unqualified. That's usually a value judgment, right? It's good and it's valuable, or it's bad, it's disvaluable, right? But like when we, but people talk all the time about liking, loving bad movies. So clearly, I think when they're saying I love this movie because it's bad, bad is not a value judgment, right? Because other, it doesn't make any sense. It's good because it's bad. When you say it's good because it's bad, good is the value judgment, not bad. So what I argue in the book is that when people use bad in this way, they don't mean to be making a value judgment. They mean to be describing the norms and conventions of the discipline or of the, of the uh, medium. So in film, for example, there's a norm or convention that says like, 
every, every performance should be on a similar wavelength. It should seem like everyone's in the same movies, you, to, to bring back the example that you mentioned, right? But sometimes an actor will go way out of proportion with the rest of the cast. So I like Aaron Eckhart in The Core is a great example. I just watched Hannibal, Ridley Scott's Hannibal, and the Gary Oldman performance in that is in like a completely different world, right? Um, so sometimes an actor will be in like a completely different movie from everybody else. And so according to the norms and conventions of discipline, that's bad. Right. That's bad. However, so it might have been unintentional. It might not have been. I don't know. I actually think that in those examples, uh, Gary Oldman's intentional, but I think probably um, Aaron Eckhart is not intentional. So you might you might think like, oh, he failed at what he's trying to do. Right. He was trying to give like a sincere, dramatic performance in proportion with the movie. And he failed at that because it reads as excessive. But the thing is, just because somebody failed to do what they intended to do doesn't mean that they didn't do something in some other way, achieve something or do something that is in some way. Um, aesthetically interesting or even admirable. So in the case of Aaron Eckhart, what I would say is that although he might have failed at hitting the pitch he was aiming at, what he succeeded in doing was like expressing to the audience of who he is as an actor in a way that I find really endearing and appealing. Like I like, I love, I love that when Aaron Eckhart has to do these briefs. So there's in, in the movie, The Core, it's a very silly sci-fi movie, but a number of characters die. And like, there's all these scenes where Aaron Eckhart is expressing grief. Right. And so I really admire the, the way he approached those scenes was like he's in a completely different movie. Like he's like like his grief is so profound and so sincere that it doesn't belong in the silly movie. And I really admire that about him as an actor that he's like that he really searched for like it's almost like like someone in his family had died. And that was his motivation in those scenes, you know. And so he brings this level of sincerity that doesn't fit in the movie. And that makes the movie more interesting to me, not less. So my value judgment is it's good, but like in terms of the norms and standards of the discipline, it might be a bad quote unquote performance, but not be not in, not that it's disvaluable. That just means it breaks the rules, right? Is what I mean by that. So so that that's what I argue in the book. And and you're right. Like so the title, it's okay to love bad movies. It suggests so this kind of paradox. And I, I so I was hoping when I when I you know when that became the title that like people would get the wrong idea about it and then have that corrected as they read it. I was sort of aiming for that. But what I didn't suspect, what I didn't expect, was that so many people would just read the title and respond only to that. Um, it's unbelievable how many people will do that. Like on Twitter, people will just like quote tweet the book and say, if you love it, it's not bad. And I'm like, oh, I didn't think of that. I wrote this whole book and I didn't think of that. Right. Anyways. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, that's today, that's social media in a nutshell, though. Uh, but no, I mean, we're, we're getting in, into really interesting territory here. And but one of the things is like, first of all, it's going to be fun because I think Cliffhanger, it doesn't have that where like, I think there's one actor that's super out of the like, Lithgow. yeah, Lithgow super, is super out of but Lithgow is the most exaggerated, yeah. the most exaggerated. I think he was nominated for the Razzie and he's almost a cult status, right? That performance now is like, the first yeah. thing that people think of. Um, but yeah, I was going to bring him up though. But yeah. it's a little different because it's a still a little bit more anchored, not more anchored. The whole movie's a little unhinged, right? Like everyone's playing it to uh, a hammy sort of action-packed movie. They're not trying to have a, an amazing amount of gravitas unless you think Lithgow is going there. And that's a tricky one. That's so funny because then we're also running into it. This is what I thought so much watching this movie is if this is quote unquote a bad movie, uh, it's already strange because like a few years ago, now we have more reviews, but a few years ago, this had 82% of Rotten Tomatoes. So it was actually high. Now it's like down to the 62s, actually. So you can see how things in time just change. Well, the well, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember how it was reviewed at the time. But the thing is that like old, older movies that predate Rotten Tomatoes, they have skewed scores because like it'll be the only like there will be very few reviews and the only people who bothered to write about Cliffhanger were positive. And then I think you've got some negatives because it was released on 4K disc. So you got a new round of reviews. That So, I mean, I I didn't pick Cliffhanger because I, I think of it as a movie that's thought of as bad. It was a it was a hit at the time. It was, a, it was Stallone, in fact, prior to that. I, I, um, Stallone had a few failures. He did throw him on from the train and he had this like gangster comedy, this crime comedy called like Oscar. It was a total failure. And he was actually like starting to feel irrelevant. He's like, that's it. My career's over. And, um, and he, but he was, he's like, I'm going to take one more stab at the genre that made me famous. Like the, the, the action genre, like one more big full bore stab. And if this falls flat, it's like the world doesn't care about me anymore, but it was a huge success. Right. Um, so I didn't, I don't think cliffhanger is such a marginal movie. I picked it because it crosses between a genre that I'm very interested in and a genre that you're very interested in. I think it crosses the, the diehard scenario genre and the sports movie genre, it brings them together. And I think that both of those genres are fit into my I mold of a good, bad genre. Um, and it's, a, and, and I, and so, and I think the way that the cliffhanger straddles both helps to tease out what I think is interesting about formulaic genres in general. And so, especially when you see two formulas collide at once, it sort of, to me, it brings out why they're so interesting to begin with. Right. But I like so cliffhanger, I wouldn't say cliffhanger is such a downtrodden movie. I wouldn't say that. Yeah. I like, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was, my question was going to be, why did you pick cliffhanger as a bad movie? Because in my opinion, it's not a bad movie. It's a classic yeah, no. uh, for its genre. So I do like that defense, but I did like the idea you brought up how it combines like sports and action movies. So I kind of want you to clarify, like you said, why'd you pick this one for the sports connection? Because I'll be fair, for me, it's a little minimal in this one. Uh, yeah, I always, pick, I always I, think of it, it as an action movie. And I get that the cliffhanger can be a sport, but I always see it as like, that was the spectacle of it, right? That was kind of the draw. So I don't want to get into your thought process for that. Because I found it really interesting. Uh, we're doing, like I said, we're doing this one for like a sports movie podcast and like an action movie podcast. Right. No, totally. It's definitely, I think it's primarily an action movie. But um, so when I was given the prompt, like pick a sports movie and you can, you can construe that quite widely. I'm like cliffhanger, right? Um, I like that. <laughs> so it, it, I do think it's a, I, I, and I am, and I am taking you up on that offer to construe the category very broadly, but here's a quick argument that it's a sports movie. So like I, I mentioned, I was going to compare it to Days of Thunder. So I actually watched Days of Thunder recently as well. And like one of the things that's striking to me about Days of Thunder. So the arc of the movie is it's like Tom Cruise is this hot young racer. He gets this uh, team, new teammate with, uh, you know, collaborate with Robert Duvall and he has enormous success but like that whole part of the movie the sort of whole arc on the way up is very very brief it's like a montage and so so the beginning of the movie he's like losing races losing races losing races Robert Duvall convinces him to drive more carefully and not burn up the tires and then he wins like 10 in a row within a montage right um we don't actually like spend a lot of time on his succeeding and we fast forward very quickly actually to um this major accident and most of the movie is about him psychologically recovering from this accident right pretty early on in days of thunder what happens is it's actually the same actor michael rooker right um so there's this rivalry between michael rooker and tom cruise like they're jousting for position in a race and there's a major crash and the, and the course is full of smoke and debris and they both go through this major crash and they can't see where they're going and they collide and they have this horrible accident where, um, you know, Rowdy, they both have major like brain injuries, like Rowdy can't maybe can't race again. And Tom Cruise loses his ability to race well because of this accident. He like is flinching, like he can't quite compete at the same level. And most of the movie is about his recovery. And so the, the climactic moment is in him. He's approaching the same situation again at the end of the movie. 
There's a crash. There's the smoke. There, he has he having um, PTSD flashbacks to the original crash. And it's about him, you know, holding on and making it through this. And that's the moment of redemption at the end of the movie where he sort of faces his biggest fear. And Cliffhanger has that exact same arc. Right. So at the beginning of the movie, um, Stallone, Stallone character, they're, they're, they're doing sport rock climbing. This is not right. Like a rescue situation. So these characters are like a rescue team. And I think it's supposed to be in Rocky Mountain National Park or it's at least in Colorado, although the movie was filmed in the Dolomites in Italy. Um, yeah. But it's supposed to be in in Colorado. And so at the beginning of the movie, in like a sport climbing situation, there's an accident and Stallone drop. It's by the way, that is the most famous scene in the movie. And it, every time I watch it, it's so suspenseful. Um, but so beginning of the movie, Stallone drops this woman. She falls to her death. Right. And then he can't he doesn't want to climb again. He leaves. It's just like Tom Cruise. Right. This sort of stressful situation forces him back on the mountain, you know, dealing with the sort of diehard scenario. And at the end of the movie, we get a repetition of the exact same situation again, where he's mm -hmm. got the woman by the. So it's an exact mirror of Days of Thunder. Right. And, mm -hmm. and then he, he faces the situation. He pulls her up. Right. And he's sort of rehabilitated. So one of the major things in Die Hard is the rehabilitation of the nuclear family. Right. The, um, and that happens in a certain way in uh, Cliffhanger. Right? It's, uh, he's reunited with, with this woman at the end of the movie because he's been able to face his fear in this way. Um, and so I think that we have this arc that is extremely common in sports movies. Right. Of somebody, um, an athlete having some kind of a major setback. And then and then the movies about them climbing back out of that and getting back to their old selves or becoming competitive again. And we have that overlaid with Die Hard. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm glad you brought that to light because we've talked about this many times on the podcast to a much slighter degree, but it is, it is a sports movie trope. Uh, like you said, the athlete who fails in the sport in some critical situation, therefore doesn't want anything to do with it. It could be Gordon Bombay from missing the triple deke, right? To not ever want to play hockey or be with those damn kids. It takes a DUI to get them back into it. But, you know, um, Danny Glover, Angels in the Outfield, right? Scarred from the incident with uh, our broadcaster who spiked him, right? Like you said, that, that idea he doesn't want anything to do with, with uh, baseball, right? It's a very common trope. Do uh, you think of any other ones, Paul, off the top of your head? Since no, you tackled it. It's perfect. Sure. But I loved uh, Matt. You did a great job there. Great defense. And first of all, our very first introductory episode, we were like, we, are, we can bring anything on and we can just, you know, work through it. If it's not a sports movie, we'll get there at the end. But we're all for you know, experimentation, expanding the the boundaries of genre yeah. as much as possible. And to see what that does, is just an intellectual project. And so mm -hmm. I like, after we started talking about it, right? Because, you know, we talked about it back and forth a bit before this episode for our listeners who are like still thinking this isn't a sports movie. I thought we had all the reason to go for it. I feel like we had to after we talked about it enough mm -hmm. just to like have this conversation that we're having right now. Um, mm -hmm. And to, to hear you make the parallels between Days of Thunder just shows like how, yes, this isn't fundamentally a sports movie. First, it would be an action movie, a diehard scenario movie, uh, maybe even like an adventure escape movie second, mm -hmm. right? But those genre tones are even in there as well, right? Nothing is an homogenous, you know, in a vacuum of any genre too. Every genre has mutations. It has contagions that are inflected upon it from other genres. Um, so it's not saying that like we can do absolutely anything all the time, but, but I thought this was a very, a perfect sort of synthesis of all of our interests. And just to go back really quick, cause we were talking about how this was such a success. I just want to give our listeners some numbers. It's made 85 million uh, in total box office off a 70 million budget, but look at these numbers. This was released and in theaters for 218 days. 
Like mm-hmm. literally, this stayed in the theaters in almost an entire year. This yeah, it, it was on TBS and TNT for the rest of a lifetime, though. I mean, that's <laughs> that was a go-to Saturday movie for a while, man. Like for me, like that was one of those Stallone movies that was always like we mentioned with like with Lauren that was always on those channels. Like the one of those Ultimate Dad movies uh, that you'd eventually see. So like I remember seeing uh, Ace Ventura uh, when Nature Calls. Right, the intro is like a complete parody of Cliffhanger. Right. right. And that's one of those like you have to you, you have to see the movie to get the reference. It just shows like where that movie was in the in the zeitgeist in the culture there for Jim Carrey to start that his sequel to, to his, his hit comedy with that with that kind of reference. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I like so what you said a second ago about how the project of exploring and thinking about and defining the genre is itself interesting. And that, that absolutely uh, hits uh, like the sort of major thesis of my book about why these formulaic genres are interesting. Right. In mm. part. So it's be- it's in part because they enable this kind of systematic engagement where when we're watching any given film within the category, you're not just engaging with that film, but with the category. And you're sort of watching you're like, you're thinking about the category through thinking about the film. And that's part of what makes these films so interesting is that you're not just watching them in isolation, you're watching them as part of a system, right? And I think that like when you when you have a, a system like the sports movie system and then another system like the diehard system, and then when you put them together and you see how they can, can exist in one movie and how in a way the movie can be, can sort of, can play two formulas at once, right? I mean, I think that that raises a number of questions that are both ways of engaging with the movie and ways of engaging with the genre, right? So, mm-hmm. so I, I mean, so the point that I'm making is then us having this conversation is in part like a way of appreciating Cliffhanger, right? It's that, is it like Cliffhanger raises all these really cool questions about what it is to be a sports movie and so on. Exactly. Yeah, exactly too. Um, but I also think it is wise to preface that, that we are of a certain bent in uh, aesthetic taste too, because we right. like genre. We like the, the grander categories, the structures, the systems, right? Yeah. Um, so it is hard and I get that. And it's just not the right audience for people who just want to not think on a meta level at all, right? On a structural level, in terms of like the aesthetic patterns, it, it, it takes a certain, a certain interest and intrigue in art on a more like macro level as well, to a degree, but there's multiple layers of getting into this too. But I, I, I completely agree. What's so insane too about this though, right? It, it's so successful, right? A huge commercial hit and people really liked it. And that same year, like I already brought it up briefly, but it was nominated for four Razzies. Yeah. Worst picture, worst supporting actor, worst supporting actress and worst screenplay. So, I mean- I mean, fuck the Razzies, right? I mean, really, no, the Razzies, the Razzies are the absolute worst, right? I mean, they just, I mean, they just had this thing. They just gave Bruce Willis his honorary award. They had to take it back. And like, I, I mean, I saw like a solid refrain of everybody at once just saying, fuck you. You were like, how is this a business model? Right. How is like having these terrible opinions about excellent movies, a business model, a limiting view, which I think, I mean, a terrible, terrible way of uh, I don't want to get too into the Oscars, but actually one of the main discourses that was actually positive in a few uh, months on, on Twitter was actually the film community, you know, actually rallying together to say, hey, let's actually like care about our craft again, uh, just in general, because they even have that sort of attitude on on like the pageantry of the Oscars now of like they like to like have this self-loathing and self deprecation that isn't just comical but it actually feels like they no longer like they're too cool they're too snarky to even yeah. like care about their own art which is just kind of a shit take so yeah but it is yeah. really interesting these these genre systems that we're talking about because like the genesis of this movie i was looking into it is fascinating right i think it's really this meeting of two paths and it's stallone's path and the director rennie harlan's Ren- path. Harlan, yeah, yeah. I mean, both were coming from really interesting angles, right? Because Stallone was about to appear in a comedy with John Candy, 
where they're feuding neighbors. So he was going to do this like comedic detour. I mean, it's not a detour, right? He was like, half he just comedy. did a couple yeah. other ones. Yeah. Throw mama. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, he was going to be in a different a different space at this time. He was going to do that with uh, Kuroko Pictures. But that got dropped and he segued into this. Meanwhile, Rennie Harlan wanted to do a Die Hard movie, right? But he wanted it to be a hurricane movie. And the special effects were too difficult and expensive at the time, which is crazy because this movie is so difficult, right? I'm sure most people who know about this film have looked it up, uh, know that like the Guinness Book of World Records still stands for the stunt of the the stuntman who walked across uh, the double for Stallone, uh, who literally walked across from the planes on on the on right. the cable. Um, they, wire, they, they threw a wire from one plane to another and then slid. So can you imagine? I mean, now that would be done to just be CGI, right? Yeah. But, they, but the guy actually slid from one plane to another along a wire at 17,000 feet at negative 40 temperatures. Um, and that is, yeah, that was a Guinness record. And they did that. So I, I watched the uh, the commentary track, the Rennie Harlan commentary track. And like, you know, they had like six helicopters going all the time. They're in the Dolomites. Like Stallone, like Stallone did a lot of his own stunts. I mean, they obviously blue screened like some of the stuff where like you see her falling and that kind of thing. Like they blue screened some of it. But like Stallone is up there on the mountain in his T-shirt where they take his coat away. So like the, the terrorists take his or the, the criminals take his coat away so that he'll be cold. And he, so he's actually climbing in this cold temperatures in his t-shirt and like according to the commentary track he his hands were so numb that he cut his hand and didn't even notice it and so they had to like throw out this footage because there's blood everywhere right so i mean this was like a real thing like they were up there in the mountains doing this bolted into the to the rocks flying around on helicopters and we just don't make movies like that anymore right like i mean maybe a movie like mission impossible the, the newest one had like one stunt like that you know whatever but we don't like go into the dolomites and spend $70 million. Well, today that would be a lot more than $70 million. But we don't like spend astronomical sums of money to do these huge practical action scenes anymore. And in fact, Cliffhanger was one of the last movies like that. Yeah, it, it reminds yeah. me a lot of, of True Lies in that sense. Like the, uh, I just watched True Lies a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And I, that's the, like the, another mainstream equivalent of this. You know, James Cameron just going for broke on the set pieces that just are stunning, right? The horse chase scene in True Lies, mm-hmm. amazing. The helicopter right, came out around the same time. Yeah, yep. exactly. Two of the last um, big traditional action movies, totally. Yeah, with Stallone and, and with Schwarzenegger. Yeah. yeah, and the whole syntax of this movie, right? The humor, that's what's so weird about the Razzies. It feels so of the time. It's like trying to be, it's like today we would be more meta and winky if we wanted to be like kind of a fun, self-aware action movie. And I feel like this are those things. It's doing that, but it's not trying to like flip the script or do something super breaking the fourth wall. But I feel like it totally is within the vocabulary of the action movies of the 90s and knows it. And it's going for for broke at that. And yeah, I mean, that stunt was also uh, to cost of not cost. They paid as he deserves it to something a million dollars just to perform that aerial uh, transfer scene. And Stallone, I read, gave up a chunk of the money from his own pocket because he wanted it so bad. Another fun fact, these are just like funniest facts I've read in a while, is that the sneak previews for this had a shot of the, you know, the bunny rabbit scene. It was actually shot and killed <laughs> and <laughs> o- audiences hated it. So he paid like a hundred grand to reshoot that so the buddy could escape. So yeah, this is next level in terms of the sense that opening sequence. I just want to get into like, you know, we're already in the movie, mm-hmm. but the opening of this movie is like, I had my jaw to the floor. I, this is the first time for me. I missed it. I missed all the dad ones. I mean, Jordan saw it how many times, Jordan? A lot. This was like, uh, especially after watching my, when I got really into Face Off and like Connor. Yeah. I'd go back and watch this one and like have way more appreciation for it, even as like a 10 year old or whatever. 
Right. Yeah. That opening scene, audiences were shocked by that. Because mm. you didn't think you don't think that she's gonna die. You don't think they're gonna go there in the opening scene. Yeah. And it's like, and the thing about that is so not only is it an absolutely stunning, thrilling, disturbing, like just the heart-sinking scene in its own right, it's not just that, it's that it shows you right away that the movie's capable of anything, right? Mm. Like it, it just announces, like, guess what? This movie will go there. And they go there again, right? They go there again a couple more times. Like when the old guy comes in with the helicopter rescue and he gets killed, like, oh, and then and that's why that, that's why you're scared that the bunny is going to be killed. And then you're happy when the bunny hops back up. And then there's the part, one of my favorite moments is when um John Lithgow, like, so the the pilot that's with the criminal gang is this blonde woman who's John Lithgow's, like, romantic partner also. So he puts a gun to her head and is like, without a pilot, we're not going anywhere, right, to try to, like, blackmail someone else. And he ends up shooting her. And so I don't know if you, if you noticed this, but what he references there is the scene from Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye, where the gangster played by Mark Rydell. So in, in The Long Goodbye, the 70s Altman uh, movie, there's this scene where the gangster played by Mark Rydell is threatening somebody and he smashes his own like girlfriend with a champagne bottle in the face. And he goes, he's like, I love her. I don't even like you. You see what I do to you. So, so John Lithgow quotes that, right? John Lithgow shoots his own girlfriend. And then he says, I loved her. I don't even like you, which is a direct quote from that Altman movie. It's like revisiting that early sensation from the first scene of like this movie's capable of anything, mm-hmm. right? It really keeps you on your toes. And so you don't trust that it's going to be a happy ending. You don't trust that every character is going to live. You don't trust that Stallone is going to live. And it makes it so much more suspenseful than if, than if things were safer from the beginning. Yes. I mean, so much happens too in that opening sequence. I mean, you get the great helicopter footage uh, from above and mm-hmm. you have so many angles, right? You have the boyfriend. I don't mean to be the husband. I didn't quite get the full degree, but you know, the love interest, the significant other, you have this fun, like banter between him and Stallone because they're being flirty, but you know that they're all friendly. I love that. It's a great dynamic. It adds mm-hmm. to the tension, you know, then you have the line, which then breaks like, you know, the love triangle apart. I'm just like visually. Um, it's not a real love triangle, but it's but they built that tension in a plausible way enough to then work with this character development later when they're where they're working together. But then you just just the shooting of like, you know, the shot where she comes unstrapped, you know, and then one ha- guy has one solution and Stallone has another solution. And both are really just emergency, you know, no, neither sound like they're actually going to work. So you start to like, as a viewer, like, is this really going to happen? And and then and then it, it goes forth and does. And then that scene of her falling is just. It, it all is so good. It starts off, you said it well. Like, I mean, I was right off the bat, just on the edge of my seat. Like, this is like the best like movie I have in like action 90s movie I've never seen. And it doesn't relent much. Well paced throughout. Like we go pretty quickly to this this airplane scene where we have people literally throwing a wire from plane to another and traversing it, right? We go to that pretty quickly. And then that plane crash. I mean, let's talk about that plane crash. Oh, right? yeah. You know how they did that? I mean, did you, well, how do you think they did that? Did you look it up? I assume like a model with like, yeah, it's a, it's like a miniature, small scale models six, and stuff like that. was, was But it's a 60 foot miniature. So they did it with a 60 foot miniature. So, yeah. and it, I mean, you can see that it's a miniature mm-hmm. once, you know, when you're thinking about it in that way, but it's it's not like they, they're in like a little sandbox with this thing. Yeah, right. No, like done well. <laughs> There's only yeah. there's one tip when it hits a what's supposed to be a mountain you can see it shake like a rock basically it's pretty yeah. solid to set and like yeah I didn't know it was sixty feet though that's yeah, like yeah no, that's like Star Wars scale models like that's nah, that's like next level but. yeah totally totally and it's a, quite a plane crash right but then yeah. we're but so now we're in this situation criminals have stolen this money but the the plane has crashed this was not the plan and what's happened is the the suitcases have flown into the mountains and they've all landed in different places. Right. And then so uh, Rennie Harlan in the, in the commentary brags about this. He's like the, te- the fake technology that they used to find it. I invented that. Right. <laughs> so they have this like made up scanner thing where it just like can 
coordinate the like altitude mm-hmm. and coordinates and so on. So the movie becomes this like hunt for these, right? But then what they end up doing is these mountain rescuers respond to their accident. And then they, um, at gunpoint, force the mountain rescuers to help them act as guides to get their money back. And that's the, that's the tension of the movie. That's the, that's the uh, conflict. Yeah. So I want to point out, because like we're talking about as a sports movie too, like it takes us how long to get to like guns and like the threat of like death as the actual threat in the movie. Aside from like, you know, adventure, because the movie, like you said, the, the intro is so good because it creates that tension of always being high up, even aside when he goes into the mountains and, you know, reconnect with his, uh, like, I guess it's his wife, right? We're supposed to be. But yeah, that, that tension of everything over. I love how like it sets up like without really giving the indicators, like the culture of mountain climbing, and, like this intellect, like the tools and like how they'll eventually be used. Like this, this reminds me of um, Sudden Death with where his fireman training comes into like the MacGyver of like just killing fools with all the cool ways of like burning dudes alive in Sudden Death. Oh, uh, whereas this right. one, like you said, it's all about like, he's like Batman kind of, he's, he figures out the terrain. It's very much like Rambo-esque. We forget Rambo where he's, he, he just uses the terrain very well. But this is like the way it sets up, like with the beginning of him being like the skilled climber and like those visual shots of whoever the stuntman is just sell it the whole time that he's just like the greatest climber pretty much. Because like I said, it's, it's, it creates, for me, I'm not even scared of heights, but this makes me like not want to look down, which again goes into that whole tension of not looking down that first scene. But yeah, I love I love how it like you said it does a good job of all the indicators of an action movie of this of what an action movie starts without like the guns the blazes. By the time you get to that like what would be I guess the twist like the hostage situation like you're geared up for uh, a Stallone esque action movie like I said where he normally would be the one with the gun kind of right. clipping dudes down. I love how it's not that at all. Right. right. It's, 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 it's reverse. It's him using his, mind, his intellects. Right. Like I said, his skill within like mountain climbing and just knowing the terrain to like turn the tables, which is, is cool. It's a, it's perfect. Like you mentioned his career point in that time. Right. A little bit older, not the 80s Sloan. Right. But, you know, he's still he's still a badass. Right. Which I, I love. I love that that undertone, the way he kind of just inverts it. Right. Like you give you an example of what you're talking about, like the, the bit where he's fighting this uh, one of the criminals who's like obviously trained in martial arts. Right. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the criminal is going to he's going to kill him, but he's trying to get him to tell him where the money is. And what Stallone does is he runs him into a stalag, uh, stalagmite. Right. And so it's taking advantage of his knowledge of the environment. Yeah. Right? Like it, to be an opponent that otherwise defeat him. But like so you made some comparisons. But again, like the main comparison I would make is John McClane and Die Hard. Right. And the, because you have this sort of scenario where there's uh, so Lithgow is ob- like so Lithgow, by the way, he's doing like a I don't know how you label his accent, but that's like a, I would think of that as like a mid-Atlantic accent. The accent he's doing is wild and I love it. It's like an antiquated American accent that would have been associated with like the upper class in New England and like <laughs> right in like the middle Atlantic states. Right. Um, and so or tra- it's called a transatlantic accent. Sorry, not a mid-Atlantic, a transatlantic accent, because the, the sort of upper class of the American Northeast would ape the British upper class styling. And so it would talk like that. And so you have it's sort of completely because the background is supposed to be like special forces. And yet he talks in this like antiquated transatlantic posh accent, right? Mm-hmm. But of course, who else talks in a sort of incongruous accent? Hans Gruber, yeah. Alan Rickman's character in Die Hard, right? And of course, and so there's a lot of parallels between those two characters. And of course, there's a lot of parallels between Stallone and John McClane, where so it's like Stallone is an everyman who gets sort of he's he's so the, the, the criminals or the terrorists have a bunch of hostages and he's the one who's broken free who's on his own. Right. And he's got all kinds. So just like um, uh, John McClane doesn't have shoes. Remember? So he gets his feet all bloody. Stallone doesn't have a shirt, doesn't have a coat. So he's he's got to constantly deal with being too cold and finding ways, you know, burning money and so on to warm himself up. Mm-hmm. Right. And, 
and, and he doesn't have the same kind of firepower. He doesn't have, so, so it's, it's actually, I think, one of the closest diehard parallels at the time. Obviously, like, there's a, like, sudden death is very direct, but I think it's a very close diehard parallel. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, I mean, another interesting part is you brought up the great seed, right? Where he like impels the guy on the stalagmite, right? Uh, before he does that too, he grabs his balls, which is hilarious, like very, very juvenile humor, right? Uh-huh. And and before that, like they have the very, very funny back and forth where the guys like keep saying like, I'll put you to your grave, bitch. No bullets, bitch. Like the bad guy, the villain. Uh-huh. And, you know, he's so hamming it up. And earlier we have a really funny line by Lithgow. I'm just going to like throw some of the dialogue out there for our listeners, right? Where he says like, you kill a few people, you're a murder. You kill a million, you're a conquer, right? Go figure. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Um, yeah. And, you know, over and over again, right? Like uh, gravity's a bitch, right? Someone says, right? There's these lines. And I was thinking about your book still. Um, and there's a part on Batman Forever, which is great. And you're writing about all the puns that uh, Stallone- Batman, Batman, uh, Batman and Robin. Uh, sorry, yeah. sorry. Yes, thank you. Batman and Robin, my bad. The, the campy, great Batman uh, from the 90s with um, uh, George Clooney, George Uma Thurman. Yeah. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, Yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is getting to my point, right? And and they give Arnold these lines that are playing to Arnold, right? They're playing to who he is and they're riffing on who he is. Mm -hmm. And they fill this movie with all these lines like for Stallone, Um, even though Lithgow isn't quite like the archetypal action star or villain star. I mean, he's played villains in quite a few actually movies I've seen recently. Um, They're giving these archetypal tropey lines that know what they are. They're for the genre and they're hitting, they're hitting all the marks. Right. And there's, there's something really fun. So like as the, the critical community, right. The, the arbiter, uh, you know, the authoritative voices on taste are going to roll their eyes and, and call it that sort of, you know, puerile, right? Someone with uh, a more generous viewing, right? Someone with more expansive uh, appreciation of genre and quotation and intertextuality between films within a system, right? As your book gets in, I'm kind of trying to take your book, right? Your Batman argument for this is yeah. going to enjoy those moments, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I feel like that kind of really nicely uh, aligns with sports movie tropes because they're both very formulaic, right? The action film and the sports film. And yet their formulas are speaking to one another. They're riffing on the same nuance. You also talked in your book about the Madonna and baby you know, painting and everyone does their own version of that painting, right? But it's not that they're all the same, right? That just makes you look more into more nuanced subtleties, right? There's, there's something within delving into something, right? Like any music genre, like pop punk, for right. example, from an outsider, it looks all, sounds all the same, looks all the same. Once you get in it, it's not, right? You can do any genre, metal, whatever. Right. So, so, so like, yeah. a, you know, the Jean Renoir, the great French filmmaker, one of my favorite quotes from him in, in an interview, he says, um, so he, he's complaining in the interview about how like silent films were something great and profound and how like uh, a, after the beginning of sound films it started to more emulate theater, which he found less interesting. And he's complaining about this and he's saying like story is overrated. And he says, what we should do is every filmmaker should just make the same movie right every year there should be one movie and every filmmaker should make the same movie and he says then we would see true difference emerge right and and i find that really interesting because his point is of course that what's interesting about movies what makes movies interesting is not primarily their stories i mean stories are interesting don't get me wrong it's not primarily their stories it's the unique combination of sound and and moving image and and the capabilities of, of that particular medium which is not simply storytelling right and so if you focus too much on the story you know, and stories being different, stories being interesting, stories being engaging, then you start to lose sight of what's particularly interesting about this medium, 
Whereas if you hold things fixed, right, if you take 15 movies that have the same basic plot, other, then that brings other differences into view, right? If that makes sense. Just like when you look at 15 paintings of the Virgin Mary with the baby Jesus, when you go to the Louvre, that brings into view the difference of the, say, the painterly style. Whereas let's say when they're using, if the paintings are wildly different subjects, maybe the, the differences in style aren't so, aren't so obvious. That makes sense. And what's also interesting too, is I want to riff back on one, one of Jordan's points a second ago too. Um, and I want to put a pin in what you just said as well. But Jordan, when you were talking about, I was just thinking, uh, you know, how Stallone only uses like his rock climbing skills, right? His body. That almost opens up a whole nother genre. It's really fun and interesting of like Jackie Chan movies, right? Like hmm. Kung Fu karate movies in which like often, well, often they're fighting just raw fights, but you have these movies with, you know, these action stars um, who are more athletic, right? And so- hmm. I just find that interesting. It's already delve into the sports like genre talk again, but mm-hmm. we we've already considered those, you know, Jordan long ago, sports movies, right? Those oh, like, definitely. yeah. So in, in another sense, I feel like it fits because of that argument you made uh, to a T right. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's featuring the body first and foremost, right? That that's, even though this is an action movie, you make, you both made great thesis, the days of thunder one. And now that one of like our action star is using physicality for the most part to win every single battle and sequence, which, which, which brings to the body. But what's also funny too, right. Is you brought up that there wasn't guns until like kind of farther in it, but then there's guns. I did not know this, but this was rated NC 17 originally, which is insane to me. Right. <laughs> it's toned for even like an R movie considering the time, like, like the ones we mentioned already, like Die Hard, The Rock, Face Off, those are all way more gory and like, you know, sexually explicit than these ones. Yeah, well, we're, we're seeing the cut version. I would love to actually see the, the original version because they said that several death scenes in the film were shot in slow motion and lasted several seconds and they had to cut every single one. I read there's like not a single cut in the theatrical release uh, of like a, of a death sequence that's original. So, you can see these, by the way, on YouTube. I just checked. There, there are some on there. There are some, uh, some YouTube scenes. It apparently, it's interesting. So one thing we didn't mention yet are the base jumpers. Uh, um, oh, yeah. Apparently, like stoner jumpers. The, right. When the base jumper dies, we get some gore there. And the, um, mm. yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I love the, the, the Spicoli duo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, brought in the like point break vibes for like oh, right or like i was thinking mountain dew commercial right yep, it's like, exactly it's like, oh we're into like what's yep. extreme i almost i don't know when the mountain dew commercials came out but i would actually guess that if they weren't already out then they were ripping off cliffhanger i feel like they came out after this because this was like remember these are like the dudes like fucking like yeah. surf ninjas this was like three ninjas too like every movie had those like stoner skater you know this was like a, a, the early extreme sports but, but they like, even say it they like say it's like the same as the mountain dew commercial they go you know we like it extreme yeah. you know and they're like, well, they're they're explaining why they're like not looking at the weather report. Right? Yeah, I think they're both named Chad, actually. Yeah, we yeah. didn't see it in the credits. Right, right. But I was going to mention them as well, because that's another sort of sports movie touchstone that keeps coming up is that like we keep getting reminded this is all happening in a recreation area. And they're like people recreating yeah. around them at, at, all the time. And it's, it's like mm-hmm. a sort of constant reminder. And it's like the comic relief as well are these guys. But then it's not so funny when one of them gets killed. And apparently, yeah, yeah in the original cut, it's even gorier. And like, re- yeah, Rennie Harlan, like his attitude about this, he's like, he's like, what my goal is to like you to see the villains as being really brutal and for you to like really feel like they're capable of anything and for you to really want to see them lose. Uh, but there's but audiences do have a limit and there's a certain point where you can't push them too far. And yeah. it's like trying to stay within that limit. And they found and a good balance. Like, yeah. like cause like yeah. you said, the attachments humor on the one side and then right. genuine like emotional connection to our old guy, like how I think his name is right. Yeah. Like, the, like our guy who comes in the last day, the older guy, right. He even like, he's an artist. He, we didn't see him make a painting. Right. right. Uh, I love like the little intricacy of details. The character you said, we're going to get off. 
So you do, yeah. you do care about him. You want them, you want Stallone to get his revenge. It moves the story like to that final arc. You really like, it wraps up so nicely because it ends on such a good just action scene and like movie done. But they get revenge for all those people you liked along the way, including the little stoner dudes. And I like how they, uh, they go broke too. Like, you know, today we watch the Fast and the Furious movies, that franchise for a movie like this, right? A movie that's going to just like, wave its balls like in front of you for three hours and it's money and and flex and this movie's flexing the whole time i think like even with the technology with like the night vision goggles and the thermal signals and stuff it feels dated now but i was thinking like this had to have been like kind of tech flexing that they're doing right again and again and then the action sequences as we've already talked about with the plane crash i mean phenomenal scene set pieces. Yeah, there's some really yeah. complex digital composites, like a lot of that stuff. Yeah, they're obviously they don't really have night vision filming technology. That's like day for night photography they're doing mm-hmm. there and so on. So yeah, there's a lot of really complex technical stuff going on in the movie. And again, like, I think this is something where at the time people had action movie fatigue because like in the 80s, like the Canon group was huge. And like the way people complain about Marvel today, like it's all Marvel, mm-hmm. it's all Marvel. That's how people complained about action movies back then, yeah. right? So I think there was a sense in which we were kind of on the tail end of the heyday of the American practical action genre in like 1993. And the world had fatigue. But the thing is, now there's like basically no practical effects in most action movies. And mm. now, like all these years later, we're fatigued of this digital world. And now we go back to these 90s movies and they're absolutely astonishing in a mm. way that we couldn't necessarily appreciate at the time. And I think there's parallels. Like the same thing is happening with the erotic thriller. Like the erotic thriller is having a revival now. And I think part of that is it's like in the, in the 90s, people were sick of erotic thrillers. There were too many of them. There were hundreds of erotic thrillers made in the 90s, hundreds. And people mm. were sick of them. But now after 20 years of sexless movies, people are like, oh my God, these are great, <laughs> right? Like all the, you know, like the ones yeah. that were disrespected at the time. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, everything, they, as we say, goes in cycles with genres too. It really does. And, you know, we're seeing like even this weekend with Ambulance, I mean, it didn't make a ton. So maybe that defeats my argument, but at least there was like a, a fervor going on, right? For like a, a non-IP, non-franchise action studio film for adults. Everyone was stoked for it. And it was yeah. like, it was like a, 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 like a quick revival within at least a niche of like my echo chamber, my little bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everyone saw the like box office results, Sonic at 71 million and that hit like 10. And we were like, oh. <laughs> it's, not, it's not, I mean, though, it's not the, people are too quick to proclaim the death of cinema whenever a good movie doesn't do well. I mean, it's, I don't want, I tend to not want to catastrophize about this. Like what's going to happen is Amos is going to come out on streaming and people are going to be like, oh my God, why didn't I go see this? And, and it's going to be a big hit. And the same thing happened with The Last Duel. Nobody went to see it. Came on the stream. Everyone was like, oh my God, this is really good. Yeah. So I, I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not going to like jump to conclusions by one box office weekend during a pandemic, you know? <laughs> um, so it, I, yeah. And like, it, the thing is that Ambulance was a cheap movie. Ambulance cost the same amount to made as Lic- Licorice Pizza. It was yeah. a relatively cheap movie. Like what are the returns going to be in China? What are the returns going to be, you know, um, on, so it's like the movie has plenty of time to make money and I'm not that worried about it, actually. You know, like I, I, yeah. I tend to think the catastrophizing is overstated. I agree. I love that. Yeah. And I was actually the first thought was like, let's give this time too. I think this actually might have be like this slow and steady one. Because I don't think anyone was expecting people to actually really like it and stick up for it. Or it might be like the last duel that really never gets momentum, but people will end up finding it. It'll find its place on streaming and be a huge hit at some point. But back to this one real quick. I wanted to bring up when I was bringing up that it it had almost nine, NC-17 rating. Um, our good friend, Justin Peterson, who, who runs the Average Joe's podcast, I read his review real quick on this. And he put it was like the quintessential rated R 90s film, which I get. And he was like, it was the first film my dad let me see rated R in a theater. 
And I was reading, Matt, your, your book, and you, you pay a lot of respect in your intro to your father and his love for canon, his love for like B-movies. And I just wanted to ask everyone, do you have that rated R movie that was like your first and and what was it? What was that experience like? I mean, if if you can't think on the top of your head, another reason well, I, I can think of this. Okay, so I it. say actually, my dad got my dad passed away uh, um, a little over a year ago, and uh, I will say, you know, he was a cavalier parent, and I really love him for it. He he never sheltered me from anything. So we were I was allowed to see rated R movies as soon as like age two, you know, from the beginning. There was never a point. But the first one that I really remember being excited about, and I remember the neighborhood neighborhood kids coming over to watch in my house because their parents wouldn't let them watch it, was RoboCop. Um, RoboCop was absolutely the, the first one that really, really struck me. All right, so your size perfectly into mine because uh, my first one in theaters, or my dad took me, actually took me and my next door neighbor, Thomas, Paul's childhood friend as well. Um, and Thomas was like kind of like the sheltered kid. His parents never really let him do anything. We we're kind of, I think we we're maybe like four, four or five, I think, when RoboCop 3 came out. And he took us to see that in theaters. I remember I loved it because I'd already seen RoboCop at home, but that was the first one in theaters. I'm like, I was really into it. And I remember he came back home and told Thomas's mom which movie he'd taken us to see. And she, she just blew up on his face, like, how you're the worst parent ever. How could you take him <laughs> to see this? You know, I just remember right. this is great. So I think it's like the last time he took the kids to see a movie, to be honest. Because <laughs> my mom's yeah. the one after that. He used to take us to movies, but she was the same way. Pretty loose with the with the ratings but i remember robocop 3 was the one i saw in theaters it was the first yeah, i don't know about movie. theaters it might have been pulp fiction it might have been earlier than that but my dad definitely took me and the thing is he also took my younger brother <laughs> to see pulp fiction at the time oh, uh, i don't know if i saw robocop in theaters but i just looked up i was six when it came out and we like we were we were allowed to watch it and i it was like my favorite movie ever oh yeah, yeah. Robo- that's robocop's one of my favorites of all time like yeah, you said yeah. yeah big part of my childhood that's great i mean i have two right so jordan i guess your your, your parents were the hip ones that took us to our first real rated r movie so my first one was with jordan and his parents and that's funny you brought it up that was sudden death the, oh. yeah that was the first john claude van damme i remember we saw it at i I want like movie six. It was a weird one. And like, anyways, I don't want to get boring to people, <laughs> but I remember all the details. And I was so like nervous and scared because like it was on the down low. We told my parents, I think we were going to see a PG 13 movie. Mm-hmm. I forget which one. And your mom even vouched for it, which is great. So rad. Classic um, Virginia. <laughs> yeah. But then my first with my parents was Con Air, which is fun because it's a lot. I mean, I got a lot of Con Air vibes from this. I just brought that memory mm-hmm. because it's like a kind of coming of age you know initiation right of many boys like young boys is like what's your first rated r movie uh you know when you feel like an adult there's that feeling mm-hmm. that badge i mean i walked around the next week like just feelings like i didn't care about yeah, yeah you know what i mean like yes yeah, it totally is that um and so it's funny too because they had a kind of a sequel to con air called con express have you you've probably seen that matt i'm guessing i actually haven't let me look okay. it up. yeah but there's they stole in that movie archival footage of the plane crash from this film <laughs> <laughs> that's another thing that i don't know if your book gets into but what i love it's not so much this one right but a lot of the movies you talk about is their resourcefulness and i think there's something there that i find quite admirable and endearing and aesthetically rich right because already like we're talking about like a lot of these films considered like the detritus of like the entertainment industry some right they're like low buds they're doing what they can they have these harebrained plot ideas and they just go for it they're trying to throw everything at the wall and just see what sticks have fun totally get that that model that energy it's very kinetic it's very frenetic and kind of crazy and and 
you get great things from it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but part of the fun, I mean, as a viewer is like learning about the resourcefulness for me, I love to learn about, you know, we just talked about ambulance. It's only made for 40 million and people are saying it's insane. Right. But you know, all these movies, I mean, if it's made for a lot, it's made for a lot. That's cool too. But Mm -hmm. there is something there. There's an intrigue to like what you can do with the budget and what you can get out of a budget. It's not like the game breaker. Yeah. Speaking of this, by the way, an amazing fact, I just looked up this Con Express because I hadn't I hadn't seen it. Um, and so first of all, it, so it's PM Entertainment, which is a, a, a production company that I'm very interested in. I've seen many, probably seen close to 50 PM Entertainment movies. So PM Entertainment is uh, Richard Pepin and Joseph Mary are the PM. And they uh, this is like these guys own like a pizza empire in Vegas. And they like use their money from this to make these like these action movies, which is like super cheap, tons of car crashes, direct to video. And they're awesome. But here's the here's the amazing thing. Con Express uses footage from Cliffhanger. Um, so worlds have collided in this conversation. Wow. I'm going to yeah. watch it tonight. I'm going to watch it tonight, um, by the way. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that is. I have no idea there's a sequel to that movie. So I'm going to have to check that one out, too. Uh, and the other thing, too, I loved about your book, and I'm going to jump back into Cliffhanger a bit, is like, you know, the first of all, this is Stallone's movie, right? And it's actually like pretty well-rounded cast, I thought, for a Stallone yeah. film. But I'm a newbie. So this has been fun for me. And we're kind of doing our Stallone series you inspired us to like get other people we're doing to other salon movies and uh we're, you know we're building it up and every time you know i'm getting those new insights those new little nuances where like this time i was like he must have the most malleable of faces like i feel like his face is so like mushy uh, which makes it so good like he it's like a sort of has a play-doh quality there's like a really like yeah i gave all enough words i don't want to say anything that sounds insulting but i mean this actually as a positive it, it gives him a really expressive face right mm-hmm. um, totally yeah, but I and I love what you were saying too, though. It's like these actors, they're what we call actors of like connoisseurship. I think you're calling about uh, Jason Statham movies, right? And you sort of watch all of Jason Statham movies if you're a certain type of movie lover because you want to see all the different shades of, of their persona, right? So it's not really about like how well their character is defined, right? Yeah. It's not if they're acting wooden. I mean, I guess that's bad if they're not trying to necessarily, right? But but, but that is probably part of their persona, right? So like, whereas you get into the Stallones, you get into the Schwarzeneggers, right? There's like um, a mannered sense that that is what they are. And we have to create the vernacular around that to, to appreciate it. Right. And so, yeah, sure. yeah, I love that about your book. It's like creating right. the vernacular for that. And what's interesting is also that Stallone is very often a writer on his own movies. Right. So he was a writer of Cliffhanger. Right. He was the prime. I think he was the primary writer of Cliffhanger. Right. So it's also it's not just that it's like he lugs himself into everything. And he's got this sort of actorly persona that he brings into wildly different roles, which he does. He absolutely <laughs> does. Right. He's the whole thing that he says. And I love it. Um but it's also, and like, I think he, he, you know, you think of him as a dumb guy, but he's really not at all. He has this way of writing for himself that, that I think like plays into a building up this persona even further, right? So it's like, you're hearing Stallone delivering Stallone's dialogue, delivering the dialogue he wrote for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think tracing the continuity of that across multiple movies is exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about when I'm talking about systematic engagement, like seeing the common ground. So like, look, I mean, Demolition Man came out like a couple months later, looking at the common ground between those two performances. Now that's interesting to me, right? Of like the way that he plays those two movies and then throw Mama from the train, right? Like the year before. Yeah, no, it's the juxtaposition of these films, right? Uh, the continuity, the discontinuity between mm-hmm. certain stuff. I mean, that's, that's where you get this... Um, this canonical broad understanding of, you know, someone's career. Right. I feel like we need to think of like a term, you know, like an auteur for like an actor that like 
a word that actually defines like, I like that we have that word for directors. It's like, it means that they have this personality. It means, it, you know, it's a director with a persona, right? Um, right. We don't have an equivalent word for an actor necessarily. I mean, we, we, I guess we assume that they're all that, but you know, I don't think they are all that. They're all very different. And some, you know, I don't know. I think we should, we need more language in this field. That that's kind of, going I never thought to, about that before. And that's a very good point because I mean, people do this, right? Like, so people watch, people watch director filmographies, but people also watch actor filmographies. I do this. I just told you, I watched, I've been working on the Don, the dragon Wilson filmography and it's mm-hmm. leading me to some dark places. I mean, Don, the dragon Wilson's and all of He's been in like a lot of movies and a lot of them are very cheap, but I'm also working on like the Gary Daniels filmography. I've been working on, I've seen nearly every Nicolas Cage movie. I've seen nearly every Dolph Lundgren movie. I've seen every single Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. All I've got all those done. Right. So, you know, like when you do that, you're doing something very similar to auteur studies for an actor, mm-hmm. you know, and people do this and it's not just me. People do this. Like one of my favorite people I follow on Twitter is a shout out here to uh, Francesca de Roquefort as a British woman who is obsessed with Isabel Huppert. Right. And just constantly. Oh. So, but, but like approaching Isabel Huppert, like you're saying in a holistic way, the way we approach auteurist art, auteurist studies for directors. Um, and you're right. There's no, there's no word for that. So that's super interesting to me to, to, to take notice of that. Like we, there, we, we should in that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I wish I could not just broach the subject, but actually invent yeah. it on the spot, but I'm not feeling <laughs> something like something like something like performance, perform, performance, persona studies or something like that, you know, something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Per, per, persona. <laughs> it's hard to, it's yeah. Something easier to say something easier to say persona, persona shit yeah. or something. Persona yeah. 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 <laughs> Uh, right. kind of, persona studies yeah right um, something like that i don't know it's not that's not great but that's a start <laughs> so maybe <laughs> totally sorry um and wrapping this up sort of trying to like get into our, our final ratings in a second um i noticed we haven't talked about the score at all which i found a little interesting and, and pretty uh we don't have to go too deep but i read that it was um the same person who did the score for the last of the mohawkins and i guess if you listen to them back and forth they're like almost identical which is just a fun fact the other thing that i i thought was fun about your book that i kind of called us out in our podcast is you bring up i think it's uh hitchcock what he's called the plausibles right uh, can you define yeah. the plausibles for us right so the plausibles uh, so this is a term for hitchcock so Hitchcock had all these movies like Vertigo and so on. They had these like really um, these plots that were really ridiculous, right? Like North by Northwest, right? The plots ridiculous in these movies. And and the thing was that the critics and, and audiences would complain about it in terms of the plausibility of the plot. So like, for example, I give an example in the book of like, it's a different part of the book, but I give an example of negative reviews of Vertigo. Because Vertigo was critically panned when it was released. Now widely considered to be the greatest American film or one of the top five, right? So that th- was panned and the, and the critics said, Never before is Hitchcock engaged in such far-fetched nonsense, right? So what the plausibles are, are people who judge a movie's value as though plausibility, as though plot rationality were somehow a necessary condition, somehow or other a requirement that if somehow it fails at that, it fails. Like that somehow makes the movie bad if the plot's not rational, even in cases where that's what the artist is not, the artist is trying to make it ridiculous, right? Now, of course, there's exceptions for fantasy, but even in fantasy, like, you know, people are like a little too, you know, a little too concerned about making sure everything in the fantasy story plays by the same rules, arguably. Now that's not to, I don't mean to, like, this is a complicated issue. And let me just say up front that like, there's a way in which internal rationality helps a story. It helps make it more engaging. It helps make it more exciting, more suspenseful, right? So the, the point is not that there's no value to plot rationality, not at all. The point is that it's wrongheaded to treat it as a requirement for movies where it's not, it's not relevant, 
Mm. Right. Like it's not it's not a relevant aesthetic fact about vertigo that the plot's not plausible. It's not yeah. an important thing about vertigo. It might be an important thing about some other story where that's you know, more central to what the movie's trying to do. But it's not for vertigo. And I would argue that, you know, yeah, it's true. So sports movies like, you know, there is this guy. I forget who he was, but there's this guy I was aware of who had this website who was just like, he was like a big mountain climber. And his website was like all the different factual errors and misrepresentations in different mountain climbing movies, like Vertical Limit and K2 and Cliffhanger, right? And the whole thing, and it's like as though, but there's also the idea that this makes these movies bad. Mm. And the whole thing is like a very get off my lawn kind of attitude, right? It's like, yeah, oh, yeah. I get it. You're this big mountain climbing guy, and right? But it's like, who gives a shit? Right. Or like somebody like one of my, somebody said that Days of Thunder is bad because the the races cross cut between footage from different tracks. I care not at all. Right. I mean, yeah. literally could not care less that that's what they do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so uh, the question, so the issue, so what I argue is just that, that like that treating this as a universal requirement is a mistake and that, that like that there are cases where it's in no way a demerit for something to be implausible or irrational or unrealistic and cliffhanger. It's like, Cliffhanger is, is not trying to accurately represent mountain climbing. That's not the goal yeah. of the movie. The goal yeah. of the movie is to be an awesome, rip-ass, exciting action movie. Exactly. Um, and, you know, if you have to bend the rules to make it more exciting, good, mm. right? Um, because yeah. it's, not, it's not like a realistic... It's not like you're watching 127 Hours, for example, where the realism of the story is part of what makes it so suspenseful and exciting. It's a different movie. Yeah, especially because of the context, like you said, the action genre. Like, it, it does all the cues you said to situate you as a viewer to disregard in a good way, mm -hmm. particularly, like we said, the scene we just all hyped up with the practical stunt with the airplane, plane to plane, right? How much of that scene is just impractical with like windows of the plane blown out? Some of it looks, you know, really weak compared to some of it else. Some of the right. other shots, like it just like aesthetically, but even the scientific aspects of bulls going off in a plane, dudes getting shot at close range, right? Other movies train us differently now in the action movie that that equals, you know, playing wind tunnels going up, whatever. That's the, the new science for it, right? But again, it disregards and it trains you to like accept like the the malleability, like you mentioned Paul earlier, of Stallone's body, which again, the, his face does such a good wonder to like, anyways, you're used to see him get the shit kicked out of him Rocky in Rambo, right? Like that's the perfect, you know, uh, like vessel for this story, right? Which which I agree with you. I think it it, it seems that it's, it's too trite of an argument, particularly when it comes to action movies and I mean, like, in cinema in general, like the to not sustain your disbelief as a viewer and going there actively to like use that as a fly I agree it just seems the merit on the viewer yeah no i mean what what's another important distinction right is like a lot of these are choices right they're trying to omit things on purpose there's a lesion going on there they're cutting and they're mm. taking out the filler for pacing right there's an economy to an action movie you want to keep and that economy like necessitates that you're going to you know not maybe tie every dot and mm. we we accept that as a viewer. So there's this like intrinsic contract that's going on so that when you have this weird sort of pedantic nitpick who, you know, as you brought up, like those people, right? I, I read it on this one. There was someone who like brought up how the bolt gun, which fires the bolt, would actually like not impel the like flaky shell on the rock. They would, you know, they got really detailed about like why it was an unrealistic portrayal of yeah. rock climbing. I, I read the exact same stuff. I, I, I don't want to say- You just uh, want to make a jerk off yeah, motion, yeah. right? I hear that frankly yeah. No. You know? yeah well so at the beginning of the movie like you talked to you mentioned again the the really exciting plane to plane stunt right i mean again you have something that's that spectacular that thrilling that enormous and to have your reaction to that be like nitpicking the laws of physics 
to me is just it, it reflects a smallness right it reflects yeah. like a like a, a like you don't see how awesome that is like yeah. like it's like a sort of like an impoverished vision right that you don't yeah. see something that you're supposed to see because you're so preoccupied with the wrong thing mm. yeah it's like a spoiledness to our greediness uh, as well yeah. because you know yeah to to make everything work in your sort of cosmic order uh, you know it's a limitation of imagination as well right. you know but i do love the sort of like director's commentary vibe of like finding for fun though so it's fun uh, it's weird we are like i said sometimes the plausibles but i think we we love them in like a sort of enjoyable way those incongruities are hilarious and part of the joy of movies as well um yeah you know, yeah i mean that's the thing right i mean i think sometimes no i mean exactly so i, I mean i i don't i, I haven't listened to enough of your podcast to hear a lot of you doing this i'm sorry like, i've listened to sure. some episodes but i haven't enough that i've seen you do this over and over again but like i mean there's a way of doing it that's affectionate there's a way of noticing the incongruities affectionately mm-hmm. and and like and, and and that's different i mean the, the the problem what i what i'm complaining about there so what i'm ultimately worried about is this dystopia where every movie makes perfect sense Right. Like I'm just imagining this world where every movie has got this like plot rationale that people want so badly. And I'm like, I'm miserable in this world. I'm so miserable in this world. And I'm just like, I, my very selfish goal here is to convince people like, maybe it's okay if not every movie is like that. Right. Leave me a few, right. Like leave, leave me a few for me, <laughs> please. I, I absolutely love that. Yes. I used yeah. to think that, I mean, as someone who loved like William Burroughs and so forth, you know, like really like cut and paste, like experimental artists of all like Dadaism and so forth. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the fascism of narrative, the fascism of like structural unity, you know, when you're an artist at some point, like becomes suffocating, right. You feel claustrophobic. And so, yeah, I love the freedom too of just like, let us enjoy, you know, our dissonance, if you want to call it that right. Our, <laughs> and, and just like, let it be. It's funny too, because what I loved about it, and I didn't feel like like so culpable or full of contrition or anything. It was just like, it gave me the language finally of, of saying like, this is what we're doing here, but we're not dissing the movie. So last episode we did, right, was Victory. I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, it's another fun Stallone movie, which is a soccer sports movie, right? But it's also the great escape movie. It's an escape from prison movie. So it's a really weird fusion, right? The two elements just don't work. And we're over and over again, we're pointing off these like ludicrous incongruities of narrative, of tone and all these, you know, so forth. But it was hard for us uh, to really, I feel like in that discussion, find that reconciliation that we wanted because we kept saying like, you know, there's all these things, but like, we're not, we're not critiquing it. We're, this is, this is why it's such a fun, great movie. So definitely that's what you did there. Yeah. Um, and to yeah. avoid uh, giving the wrong impression here, let's be clear. Sometimes this can be a flaw. Let's be yeah. clear. Like there, there, there are cases where like the movie not making sense makes it worse. I'm not claiming that not making sense is always good. I'm saying make room for that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Let there be space. Give yourself the benefit of the doubt that you can tease out enough nuance in your critical skills that you'll still make a, a, you know, you'll still have discretion, you know, even if you blur those lines, right? You make them more flexible, you can still have discretion, you know, find a new way to look at it, a new way to rate it in your mind, rank it and compartmentalize it in you, you know, your, in our like really amorphous nebula of taste. So I, yeah, I love that. Um, but yes, I mean, so much of this, I was reading that was just that, like, I mean, some are funny, like, 
you know, I love the setting of this movie too. We don't get enough movies in like the, you know, it was all in the Dolomites, right? But a little bit was shot in Durango, Colorado, and it's supposed to be the Rockies, right? And we have the treasury to the, the mint, I'm sorry, the mint, the Denver mint. Um, someone pointed out, which I found hilarious, uh, you know, but but it's silly. It didn't ruin the movie by any means, though, is that the mint only actually produces coins. I don't know if anyone heard that. Uh, <laughs> no, I know that. So if they had $100 million as the movie's plot goes, they would have had 5 million pounds of coins with them. So, I mean, those are fun. I think those are fun facts that I, I, I we, we grew up with pop-up video. It's kind of a pop-up right. video, <laughs> fun fact. But anyways, um, this has been an awesome, fun discussion. Yeah. And I want to just end with our, our normal binaries we always do. Um, it's just one last way to put anything you want out there and to give a sort of thumbs up, thumbs down, the most boring, dualistic, arboreal <laughs> rating system. But we call it an underdog and overrated. So that opens it to contextualize it however you want. It doesn't actually have to be good or bad, but it's like, is this an overrated movie or an underdog movie? And I'll let you start, Matt. What would you consider? And could you give a, like an argument or a defense for your take? Uh, yeah, well, obviously I'm going underdog here. <laughs> um, um, I think that Cliffhanger is thought of, I think, widely as kind of a movie of the past, right? And what I guess I would call it an underdog in the sense that now that it's got this beautiful 4K release, and I would emphasize, this is a really good release. Like, it, like I've, I've been sort of recently rounding up 4K discs, and Cliffhanger, <laughs> as far as the quality of the presentation, is like one of the better ones, I would say. So th this is out there now in the world, and it's waiting to be rediscovered. And I think that, like, the kind of excitement that people bring to something like Ambulance, you mentioned, where it's like, oh, wow, like a real action movie. I think, like, the rediscovery of movies like Cliffhanger and True Lies, like, offers um, something really exciting right now in a world where we're getting so sick of these movies that, that are so green screened, so full of CGI, so bloated, you know, the, um, the, the sort of old fashioned 80s and 90s American action movie is just waiting to have a renaissance. And so it's an underdog, I think, in that sense that it's it's I'm rooting for it to be rediscovered um, as the classic that it is more widely than among action fans. Awesome. Perfect. Perfect. How about you, Jordan? Yeah, I'm actually going to obviously go underdog, too, just because I forgot how good this one is in the pantheon of action movies, particularly 90s ones. It really does sit up there possibly in the top five with, like I said, up there with like Face Off, like Rock Con Air, all those quintessential ones, True Lies we've already talked about on here. This one makes me want to reassess my list, actually, like 90s movies, kind of like as we go back. And I don't know if I like this one or Sudden Death better now, because I have a lot of memories of Sudden Death nostalgically. But yeah, this one, I, I, I again, I'm going to go underdog also for it being a sports movie, though, too. I do buy Matt's thesis for this one. I think the connection, particularly psychological connection to the athlete that we keep finding in all these sports movies we go stands up on this one. And I do like the exploration to all the tropes, again, of, of a quintessential 90s action movie from the family, the disengaged family to it being reunited, the extension of the nuclear family as well with the friends and the, and the work life. I like it all. It's all in all these movies. You can watch them yourselves and, and trace the dots. Uh, so yeah, for me, this was a, a great trip down memory lane. So underdog, definitely check it out if you're in the mood for one of these like 90s action flicks. Nice. I love that you're calling it a, a definitive sports movie now. <laughs> That's great. Um, if I had a like a DNA test for this movie of all its genre heritage, right? The, all the lineage of it, I would probably still give it like 22%. I don't know why I would do a random number sports movie, <laughs> but, but that's 22%. That's one fit. So I'm absolutely thrilled. We covered it. It was, it was really fun. And yeah, it's absolutely underdog. I don't really have too much to say. I feel like we really tackled everything. It's just a great 90s action movie. I mean, the first 20 minutes, if you don't like that mm -hmm. like level of action cinema and have respect for what it's doing on every level. I mean, I don't know. You got to be pretty cold inside. <laughs> I, don't, I, just, I just got no words. I mean, 
to each their own, I guess, in that sense. But definitely this is worth it. I mean, it, I'm glad that it's still really strong in the cult pantheon as, as it should be, but it's not, you know, always as strong. And I think that, you know, we need to remind ourselves that like from time to time, we didn't have to do everything with CGI. We didn't have to do everything. I just want to get back to the rawness of these like 90s action movies a little bit more. Um, limitation actually adds to, to, to these movies. So yeah, uh, awesome, really, really enjoyable discussion. And before we sign off, I want to let Matt, you plug yourself and tell people where to find you. I know you have Strolltopia. I've, I, I read your uh, year end list. I think you did with the, your wife and brother, um, which was really fun. And you had a great list of films uh, that you rated on that blog post. Um, but I know there's some other places to find you and just tell people where to reach out if they want to connect. Yep. So my handle is, is my name is Matt Stroll, S-T-R-O-H-L, weird spelling. Um, and so you can find me at Strolltopia, Strolltopia.com. And also Stroll, my Twitter handle is at Strolltopia. And then my letterbox, you can just look up Matt Stroll or my, my letterbox username is Matt Stroll 99, which is also a link for my Twitter. My book is called Why It's Okay to Love Bad Movies. It's available wherever books are sold. I think you'll get a better deal off Rutledge.com, which you'll get it faster if you get it from Amazon. I got it off rootlitch.com. It is a better deal. So that's me. Um, it came within a week. So it, it gave me like nice. a two week and it came within a week. So yeah, it's not a day, but it'll come. Um, so yeah. 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 And hopefully you're pocketing more from them than Amazon. Maybe not or whatever. I'm not in it to make money. I just want to corrupt people's taste. <laughs> <laughs> what were you saying, Jordan? I said, I think the delivery time gives you more time to watch the movies you're going to be reading about anyways. So yeah. use, that, use that delivery time to hit, hit the queue. I love the review you shared this week too, because it is really so good. And they, I think the review was something like, I wanted to put down this book immediately because it made me wanted to watch movies so fast, right? I think it was the LA Times, uh, not LA Times, but yeah, that was a great line in the kind of the spirit of your title and, and kind of the bait and switch in which like you think you're reading one statement and it's completely different. And yeah, definitely makes you, I'm like really dying to watch Battleground Earth, uh, the Travolta. Earth. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm like dying to see that after reading that chapter now. Uh, but anyways, thanks so much for coming on. Um, it was a blast. Right. Thank you. All right. So before we officially sign off, we're going to do our critical roundtable. So we're going to look at some reviews on both Rotten Tomatoes and Letterboxd of Cliffhanger. And starting with Rotten Tomatoes, we have a 67% now. So we brought it up earlier that it was at 88 with 33 reviews. So now we have 55 reviews and it's gone down quite a bit. As Matt said, due to likely that 4K release. So it democratized the viewer. It wasn't just the cult fans anymore. So it's a more middling level now, but it's still a favorable review. So it's not, it's not terrible. The audience is a bit surprising though, at only 52%. Usually a sort of big action flick like this would really win over audiences. I was expecting that to be in the 70s. A bit of a surprise for me, I would say. Yeah. So in terms of the reviews, what did you find all right, um, I'm going to start with David Anson of Newsweek. Uh, David writes, Cliffhanger does its damnedest to see that the audience gets its money's worth of thrills. But for all the state-of-the-art stunt work, the movie has little personality. It's ice cream without flavor. I do agree. As the audience, you do get your money's worth. I would have loved to see this one at theaters. This, like I said, was the perfect Saturday, both viewing it free on streaming, but a Saturday movie at the mall kind of thing back in the day would have been awesome. Get to slice that pizza afterwards. But I digress. No, I, I disagree with the idea that it's ice cream without flavors. I think the movie has like personality. It's spread out like we discussed earlier. And it's, like we said, it's about 
knowing the genre conventions and accepting where these genres conventions, I would say, are kind of just being slightly subverted. I think it's fair uh, with this one, which again I think is is the flavor of ice cream. It's a good flavor, right? It's like we discussed a lot of these a lot of these reviews talk about the stalagmite kill. Right, particularly on, on Letterbox, right? But again, it's it's a delivery. It's it has to be there. It has to be over the top, like you said. It has, like the ball grab, as you mentioned earlier, is so perfectly '90s, like to set it up. It, the way it gets there is, I I thought it's a journey, right? It, it makes you cringe and want you want Stallone to go Stallone in these fight scenes. That's the one thing I appreciate, right? You want to see him go Rambo, and he never does, right? He's more MacGyver, right? But lethal, which which I, I like. Definitely more MacGyver. That's great. I like that analogy. This is not Rambo Stallone. It's MacGyver Stallone, but definitely not flavorless ice cream. Come on, man. I mean... I don't know what flavor it would be, but it's definitely at least cookies and cream, right? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking like something red, maybe raspberry. I don't, I don't know. I have to think about that. Definitely have to work my synesthesia here to get <laughs> <laughs> what flavor it is. But uh, I'm going to go with the review by Jeff Shannon at the Seattle Times. Uh, he gave it a two out of four right in the middle. And he put the fact so much money. It's funny that both of these reviews, I'm putting a pin already in it. Talk about money right off the bat. This definitely was a high budget movie for its time. And people are grading it on that level. Fair enough, but maybe they're overly fixating on it. Let's continue to hear what he has to say. So, so much money was lavished on a thick-headed project represents the height of fiscal ineptitude. But this kind of roller coaster ride is perfect for eager audiences who want to check their brains at the turnstiles. I think that it is interesting. We talked about money and resourcefulness, right? This isn't one that did not go for cheap or frugal, but man, did it use its money well? Like these action sequences blow the crap we have out of the park today. Like I'll take this over Transformers any day of the week. And I'm not saying Michael Bay sucks, right? I'm (laughs) sure Ambulance is amazing where he plays with budgetary constraints, but oh man, I'll take this over those in a second. Shame on, shame on that take. Yeah, Um, especially given today's constant flops of giant movies with big budgets that don't hit the quota or exceed expectations given that market's there to be taken. They they just don't. Plenty of big studios now, you know, have way more examples of fiscal ineptitude yeah. um, and a horrible track record where this is a cult classic and standing up to time is going to have great syndication. It's one of those, I would say, defining roles for Stallone, but it's one of those ones that definitely reminded you of his prominence in Hollywood at the right time. And, you know, kept on that trajectory of always being, like we discussed in our last podcast with Lauren, always being able to just renew himself and we're talking about just Stallone as Stallone and, you know, in these different decades and he's good at it. Right. Even in his little cameo in Gardens of the Galaxy, like one of these ones we're talking about is a big budget, all that stuff. Like, you know, he, he brings in his four or five lines, that intensity of superiority over, ironically, Yondu, who is Michael Rooker in this one, his partner. Right. Marvel, another Marvel Cinematic Connection there. Right. But again, that kind of chemistry he has already. I, I can see it from here, from Cliffhanger. I didn't even make that connection. Again, these like little things he does, he does so well. Like you mentioned, the face, the the posture is the other thing, right? There's so much kind of like regality to him as an action star, right? That he brings in this, and what it is his old age now, right? This dude's in his 70s and he's just still, you know, rocking that that presence. Uh, like uh, you know, unlike um, unlike others, honestly, unlike Schwarzenegger doesn't have that anymore, uh, to be real, right? But he he still does, and this is one of those ones, like I said, where I, I think it does. Again, it, it's, I like the idea of audiences will gladly check their brains at the turnstiles. And that's a good thing. Like we discussed this, only through Salone do you get that check out and really enjoy this movie. When you check out of the plot, like we say, with these, with these nice action movies, that's when you really get the best of it. When you just suspend disbelief and just roll with it. It's the best, one of the best viewing experiences you can have. 
Exactly. That's the whole point. It's like, it's escapism. And like, if it exceeds in us checking our brains out, it's one, right? And it also is like bringing profit for an economy, like a whole industry, right? It made more money than it spent. So it's fiscally viable <laughs> on industry terms, right? It's uh, achieving its intended effect. I don't know how this is a failure on any level, um, but it, it at least there's an admitting that it, it does what it's intended to do by this person. They're just sort of, a, they're lofty-minded you know, they wanted something that's not the headed. They were forced to go by the people that fiscally pay them ineptly to do a job they don't want to do, <laughs> which is to see movies they don't want to see, which is uh, the irony of that take. So what else did you find on here? Yeah, so this one comes from uh, Jay Boyer, Orlando Sentinel. Jay writes, some movies get you so excited, so revved up on action and thrills that you almost feel like you're flying. Cliffhanger makes you feel like you're dropping. I don't know if that was kind of like a pun on that last line on the first part. I give him, give him that, right? But he did give it two out of five stars. Uh, so I, I'm guessing it's a reference to how high, high the bar set with that first pretty iconic scene. I'm guessing his viewer just really wasn't on board maybe for the rest of the movie. Um, but I do like the how tactile he is with his with his wording of this one, uh, giving it somewhat praise and kind of a little condemn condemn as well. Yeah, I like the pun though. I like the end too of the movie when the guy's like talking the walkie-talkie. He was like Lithgow's character. It starts with a Q. I'm forgetting the actual Quinn. Like, Quinn. Yeah, he was like he's right now four thousand feet south, wrapped in a helicopter or dressed <laughs> in a helicopter. Really nice dialogue there. Uh-huh. Um, I like that. It was perfect. And then immediately the film ends. I love the finality. Right? Yeah, the abruptness. Right. It was just like that's it. We're done. Yep. Well done. Yeah, I like it's that. like again, like order has been restored. Right. And I love the way it ends too, because like we're talking about the plausibility and like, you know, like picking out those nitpicks, how it makes it fun. And it's fun to pick out like those dumb things and just be like, it makes it even wackier. Like the whole point of the, the movie, like the conflict was just people not checking IDs and checking people on the radio. Like, how do you check someone's voice on the radio? Right. It's our problem with like the internet today, essentially. Right. But it ends with Michael Rooker, then on top of the thing, just like saying, yeah, it's us. We're here. Come on down, right? In the whole dilemma, everyone just keeps coming on down. Everyone who comes down just gets like shot up, right? I love it. Like it's like if you're really if you're really critical, it's always like we could make cliffhanger too, dude. It's just like you know we make Rooker the bad guy or something like that, right? But I just love that it. it's just such a like like we said that dumb plausibility. Just like if you have if you have fun with the plot, it makes it even better. Yeah, uh, no, it's super fun, and you know you could start cliffhanger two literally on the last scene just started again, <laughs> just like them on the rock now stranded. <laughs> But to continue with the puns, right? Um, Malcolm Johnson at Hartford Corant wrote, its special effects and scenery tower over its dialogue, but its plotting and character development are near rock bottom. <laughs> so everyone's going after the puns. Um, it's really interesting talking about what Matt writes, right? Matt writes that plotting and character are not requisites for a good action film. And so I, it's really interesting in dialogue with, with that to read that review that is exactly the type of critic he points out Mm-hmm. as someone who's very obtuse and dense and not seeing it on its own terms. A lot of these they're talking about like they're the visceral charge, the high altitude scenes, but the thriller elements fall flat, even by its limited sense uh, is another sort of take I was reading. So I, I, at least I recognize that person. So that's a person, strangely enough, that's working within Matt's definition because uh-huh. he announced that even on its limited terms. So he's saying like, I understand the limited terms, but it didn't work for me. That's fair enough. So that's an interesting, a quick little aside at the end of that really kind of gives that more merit, that take, that reviewer. Yeah. So let's jump over to Letterboxd real quick. What did you find over there? First one we read comes from Mads EJ. I'm going to guess is how he wants this pronounced. Uh, it gives us 
three and a half stars. Mads writes, this was a fun action movie filled with cool practical effects and stunts. The movie was a bit stupid at times and very predictable, but action movies like this one is meant for you to turn your brain off. The opening sequence had some cool climbing. It was great and very intense when the climbing got rescued, but unfortunately that scene wasn't topped at any point. And I don't like when movies show up all their best stuff at the beginning. Pretty fair, I think analysis of it right kind of like your last one where the with a good contextualization of like this movie is again the meant i like i like the idea of uh turning your brain off right because it, it could be another one of those kind of like derogatory terms i guess if you will like the idea of like we said of liking the bad movie the quote-unquote guilty pleasure right but that is fair i think like as we talk about even nostalgia of where cliffhanger is placed in like our introduction to it, where it sits in the TNT TBS world of quote unquote, turn your brain off movies for the weekend, right? What that means, uh, the recharge. Uh, that's it's interesting that term. I, I'm kind of zoning, zoning in on it, but a lot of these movies we've been watching as we get pumped are my weekend movies lately. Are now, right? And they used to be like, like marketed that way uh, commercially through like, you know, the cable networks. Uh, so I do like that. that that's just kind of just like bringing turn, like, you know, kind of coming up into our um, discourse, I guess, as, as cinephiles. But yeah, again, I, I like how simple it is. Just very earnest. So it's like, and it's a fair assessment of the movie. The, the opening is the highest point of action, if you will, the highest point of tension. Um, although you like, it does like it's very cyclical and loops around, like we said for that final act. But again, it's kind of like similar to what we said. It's good contextualized where you get the genre, but for his particular read, he wanted a little more. And I guess that that final climax of that last act. Yeah, and I've read a few of that, and I get that that like it does continue to really go for it, and it doesn't really settle, but nothing matches that opening sequence, and so yeah, that always leaves you at the very end of a movie, at least me disappointed a little bit because I've seen so many where it's like so much is packed in that opening mm-hmm. that just by contrast, you're a little let down at the end of like man, that first twenty minutes was just pure vertigo, like inducing joy and euphoria mm-hmm. of like just a marvel of, uh, you know, tension and thrill and everything. So um, it's not a total knock because it's hard to live up to it. And it shows that they're good at packing that first 20 minutes with their best content, right? But but it's just like an album, right? The first two songs are amazing and the rest is yeah. good, right? Um, and it, you're always a little let down by the end of like, well, it doesn't live up to the start, but it's still solid. So totally. Um, I'm going to go with Matt Lynch's uh, review. And definitely he has enthusiasm for this. He gives it four stars and he wrote endlessly, beautifully committed to loud, nasty violence, never missing a chance to beat the hell out of its hero and leave a bloody mess of its enemies. Lithgow makes a terrific villain having a blast matching slides every punch with a terrible quip bench pressing a guy onto a stalactite has to be one of the all-time great action movie kills. No contravance is omitted in the pursuit of cheap thrills. And then there's the fantastic late analog spectacle. Literally every trick in the book is deployed here from outstanding matte paintings to miniatures, to rear screen, to good old fashioned practical stunts. It's bond level, really a superb technical achievement. The plane to plane transfer sequence is worth it alone and has essentially remained unequal until the dark night rises. So just, you know, full blown endorsement of this film as is a iconic action movie right it's really what that was and well written so that was a i love that review it's really took me along the ride with it so what else did you find on here all right so this one comes from anna kendrick lamar who gave it two and a half stars anna writes formulaic by design but it gets the job done in terms of scale and stunts Although the movie is probably more interesting with Stallone and Rooker being forced to set their history aside, emotional resonance is never really the name of the game here. So it might have been more fun and functional to just straight up make Rooker the villain, right? Which is interesting. I like the little kind of like what if 
turn around. Like I'm always fun. I always like those takes. I think that's fair for viewers to do. And there are times where it might've in the second act alluded to the possibility that Rooker would, you know, want revenge on uh, Stallone to try and kill him. Right. But I guess they do kind of resolve that with him holding him over the ledge and bringing him back over. Right. So that's, that makes that scene, I guess, a little more symbolic. I think when you go back and retroactively watch it, watch it that second time. Yeah. It's one of those ones where like, uh, I thought that'd be the direction of the movie given the genre, right? The genre kind of says the best friend of our action hero who's been slighted usually doesn't like him anymore. Right? It's like the Punisher story, right? So like, that was one thing I, I even as a kid, I always remember thinking he, he'd be the bad guy. Right. Um, just uh, because he, he, he's the only other male given at that point, he's like on the physical level of, of slow of a uh, Stallone. Right. Which is what makes Lithgow pretty cool in this one. Right. Because he's a pretty detached villain and he relies more on the presence kind of like Darth Vader in the first like Star Wars one where everyone's just kind of scared of him by his words and like a couple actions that show he's lethal. Um, and then, of course, as we discussed earlier, when he kills his the feet, you know, like, the only woman in the movie besides Sloan Girls, right? It sends that great message, but I love how it's always punctuated with like a quip that brings like levity to the situation. Right? But that was like, well, now we're partners again. So we're getting the damn helicopter, right? Oh, it's always, it's always comes back to, to like this weird, like chirp, but like, with, with, like you said, with, like manners kind of. So I always, I like Lithgow in this. He's over the top and like, some people are going to have problems with it. But it's one of my favorite, like John Lithgow thing. Cause like I was, I, I was introduced to him from like third rocket from the sun where he's like this funny, you know, it's a comedy role. He's, he's playing an alien in a human's body and, and seeing him be so like sinister, but again, like that, where that humor he has the capacity for this one is such a good balance for him so yeah i love lithgow as our as our villain here our, our gruber-esque villain oh lithgow it's an all-time villain performance it's so fun he's having a blast he's great at it too so i, I love it too i'm gonna go with two real quick because they're really short the first one's by spinal trap so i'm guessing this is a joker and he kind of is so he wrote gave it three and a half stars he put free solo but with guns and yo's <laughs> um Stallone's famous yo uh he called out but uh, I like that real quick it's kind of a dumb review to be honest but it brought up the fact that it's really rooted in mountain climbing right free free soloing um so it brings in our sports element another angle mm-hmm. just one more and my my uh, other one is by Jaybird Jaybird is absolutely hilarious he writes a very specific type of review. So I'm going to read, first of all, his profile review so that you can understand what he's doing. He says, one way to do a review is not with more words, but few. So the form picked is film limericks. Five lines, not always easy to do. Um, I'm friends with Jay Bird. He literally writes every single review in a limerick and they're all hilarious. They're all brilliant. They're, they're succinct. They capture so much they're so cursory. They're so on the point. I mean, I've had many nights just in tears reading his his uh, reviews on stuff. One day he's going to be found and made the viral sensation he deserves to be. Or she. I don't know, actually. Right. Uh, Buzz Lightyear is her avatar. Um, so anyways, the review on this is Stallone likes hanging from cliffs when stranded friends need a lift. But things can slip. He'll need a new clip. Maybe that'd make a nice gift. <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty good. I don't know. Pretty dumb, pretty silly, but but movies also dumb and silly. I mean, it is. It's dumb and silly. It's ridiculous, fun action adventure thriller that we had fun with. So without further ado, where can our listeners uh, reach out to us, Jordan? Yeah, you can find us in that Google search bar under Cinematic Underdogs. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, of course, at Spotify, Apple, anywhere you get your spot or your podcasts. We're there. And Letterbox, of course. Uh, Paul's always writing our cool reviews over there, stuff he sees, because he's always at that theater more than I am. So 
definitely check out those and uh, give us some comments, responses, and the chirps. We always like the chirps. So until next time, keep it real. Yes, absolutely. <laughs>